Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. I am so excited to be having a, actually already, we're jumped in into a sit-down fabulous conversation with Dr. David Perlmutter. You know who he is. He's a board-certified neurologist. Uh, he's a four-time New York Times bestselling author. He's on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. Of course, he's a longtime IFM uh, faculty member. He received his MD from University of Miami, uh, where he was awarded the Leonard G. Roundtree Research Award, and he is on the editorial board for the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. He's published extensively in peer-reviewed uh, literature, and he lectures all over the world, and again, of course, with um, IFM. His books are uh, they've been translated into many different languages, and he's always up to really, really cool stuff, including a lot of really lovely self-care that we've been just conversing <coughs> on, and uh, we'll talk about. So welcome, David, to New Frontiers. Well, thank you, Kara, and I'm really looking forward to our time together. First of all, I just want to ask you, you know, you're on the editorial board for the Journal of Alzheimer's. I mean, you're you know, you're kind of, you're, you're sort of straddling two worlds. I mean, you're firmly in the functional medicine space and you have been, you've been a leader in our world for a very long time, but you know, you're kind of, you're, you're, you're in a mainstream setting as well. In fact, you guys have a um, documentary coming, coming out soon that we'll also talk about Alzheimer's, the science of prevention. And you're interviewing a lot of folks who are in, firmly in the mainstream camp. I mean, how is, how is the greater, uh, neurology community receiving what you have to say these days? It's a very good question, a great place to start. And I would say that, first of all, as it relates to the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, there's no mutual exclusivity here. I mean, that is a journal that I think is very forward thinking and open to ideas that are not necessarily based on the standard Western medical model of uh, pharmaceutical intervention. So so that's certainly not uh, counter to our mission. And as it relates to our upcoming uh, documentary, the science, uh, Alzheimer's disease science of prevention, I would say that the people we selected are more in the IFM mindset, many of whom our IFM audience would know, Jeff Bland, Dale Bredesen, uh, David Ludwig. So people that are really willing to embrace the notion that a we don't have a cure for this disease and b it is to a significant degree preventable so you know preventive medicine has been around a long time at least the notion of preventive medicine at least since the time of hippocrates so that antedates uh, or predates rather the uh, uh formation of ifm by a few years right but, uh, but you know there's been the notion that uh, 
we should be looking at how we can prevent disease. And yes. as it relates to what I do in this world, uh, the brain has been pretty much the last uh, frontier to come to the table for whatever reason. I mean, right. people have really had a tough time getting their arms around the notion that our lifestyle choices are so fundamentally important right. as they relate to the brain. And the more I do what I do in this world, that is to vet this information, yes. the more I realize that, you know, of course I'm taking a perspective here, but it looks like the brain might well be the most receptive organ in the body to lifestyle modification as it relates to disease prevention. Who knew? Really? God, that's yeah. pretty, that's pretty extraordinary statement, like underscore. So you're clearly still a disruptor, but your, your pond is getting a lot bigger and there's some pretty impressive folks swimming in there. And there's a lot of data supporting what you're saying. That, um, that's right. And, uh, I'd say that uh, it's we're really reaching. I, I don't want to say tipping point, but it, and may, and again, maybe I just have a certain perspective. Mm -hmm. But for example, when the Journal of the American Medical Association, November the second of two thousand eighteen, publishes an article, uh, a meta-analysis of ten studies uh, with over two thousand seven hundred participants, looking at the effectiveness or lack thereof of the two main classes of so-called Alzheimer's drugs, yeah. meaning uh, drugs based on memantine or drugs that are cholinesterase inhibitors to treat yeah. Alzheimer's and finds not only are they not effective, but they actually are associated with increased rate of cognitive decline on a standardized, what's called the ADAS-COG study, uh, Alzheimer's disease assessment scale. That is, um, published by, again, JAMA, uh, and for them to tell us that these drugs that are being sold in America to, uh, uh, for the treatment of Alzheimer's, to Alzheimer's patients yes. that, that you would put your faith into, that right. your doctor was giving you for mother or father or husband or wife, and right. finding out, we've known for years that they're ineffective, but finding out that they're associated with worsening cognitive function over time of your mother or your father, and yet, it's still on the market, right. still standard of care. So it, uh, last year, actually it was 2017, uh, in February, in the, in, uh, the journal Neurology, they, pra they published some practice parameters and trying to answer the question, what should a neurologist recommend when he or she sees that patient coming to the office who now has gone beyond subjective cognitive impairment and now fulfills criteria for mild cognitive impairment. In other words, mm -hmm. beyond the patient thinking that he or she is having issues, actually doing neuropsych testing and demonstrating that this person does indeed, is now on the continuum for cognitive decline. And they vetted 14 different interventions, the cholinesterase inhibitors, memantine, a bunch of other drugs, and they came up with only one recommendation as to what a practicing neurologist wow. should recommend for that patient. And it was a drug called exercise. Physical wow. exercise was the only thing sanctioned by the journal Neurology. That's the governing board that, for example, determines that you are a board-certified neurologist. And to me, first of all, not like we didn't know that. We did know that. Uh, right, uh, right. The relationship of exercise to neurogenesis, turning on BDNF to grow new brain cells, increase synapses, synaptogenesis, neuroplasticity, was so wonderfully described by Dr. Kirk Erickson at the University of Pittsburgh, who is one of our participants in the upcoming docuseries. Uh, but <clears throat> it is breathtaking that a journal underwritten by pharmaceutical uh, companies mm -hmm. would publish this. So, oh my gosh, that's just fantastic. I mean, yes. you know, I saw that, I thought, oh, well, great, here's data, I can make slides, wonderful, be great for the presentation. But when you take a step back and say, my gosh, this journal saying exercise, what a world we live in. Because, you know, Dr. Perlmutter was up there talking about this years ago and people were saying, yeah, but there's no real whatever data, you know. 
And now it's a recommendation for practice parameters. Right, right. But you know, but the other side, the flip side of that coin, so for you and your world, I mean, it's an extraordinary, well, not you and your, it's for our world, it's just, just like, you know, from the rooftops, ah, you know, <laughs> just powerful validation. But then, you know, the visual when you were talking for me was putting my hand into a conventional neurologist's toolkit and there is no, nothing there. There's no room when I put my hand into the toolkit and how heartbreaking that is and what a crisis these physicians must be in. Well, you know, it's not that they can't avail themselves of this yeah. information. I mean, yeah. there are neurologists who come up to me and say, I read your book, Grain Brain, and uh, it, it helped me. Last night it happened. I gave a, a lecture at a medical school last night, and it was happening. And, you know, there are some people who are going to uh, not be satisfied with status quo. And like you say, uh, there's there's nothing in that toolbox right. uh, to to treat the disease process itself. Uh, there are certainly some things to help with symptom management. For example, in Parkinson's, yeah, we have medications that can reduce tremor, medications to counter rigidity. But in terms of targeting the underlying disease process, there's nothing that exists in that toolbox. Right. Having said that, uh, you know, we, we fully understand that this uh, situation is a mitochondropathy. It is a, an acquired mitochondrial issue. And therefore, what do you and I and uh, integrative type, functional medicine type uh, healthcare providers recognize is a powerful way to improve uh, mitochondrial function. And one of the things that certainly uh, in vogue today is the ketogenic diet. And mm -hmm. so why don't we talk about, let's uh, design a study to use a ketogenic diet in an acquired mitochondropathy, which we call Parkinson's disease, for which we have no cure, no meaningful treatment as it relates to the underlying disease. And it turns out that um, that study was, uh, there was a study in 2005. It was more of a proof of concept. It was only five participants, but it was dramatic. And uh, more recently, a study appearing in the journal Movement Disorder uh, clearly demonstrated, it was 38 patients, eight weeks long, looked at uh, some of the things people get concerned about with respect to a ketogenic diet, high fat, low carb. So it looked at things like lipid parameters, hemoglobin A1C, but also looked at what is called the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale. Mm -hmm. And that looks at a variety of issues, uh, motor activities of daily living, motor complications, medication complications, et cetera. And virtually across the board, those individuals who got on a ketogenic diet, mitochondrial therapy, if you will, uh, had dramatic improvements in their unified Parkinson's disease rating scale, targeting the fundamental issue here, which is mitochondrial failure, yeah. giving uh, these neurons uh, in uh, the substantia nigra uh, the ability to do their thing again and pay, people get better. And, you know, it's more than a substantial Nigra issue. It's, you know, that's where people say, you know, anyway, for your yeah. neurology yeah, yeah. boards, you've got to get that one right. Pars compacta of the substantial Nigra. But, you know, there, there are a lot of projection areas from the substantial Nigra to the basal ganglia, et cetera, that are affected. And in the truth be known, it's a pan-cerebral event. Mm -hmm. uh, Parkinson's patients have constipation. They have yeah. extra cerebral things like uh, seborrhea and, uh, uh, and uh, all kinds of other skin issues. Typically, they can become arthritic. So it is a classic manifestation of inflammation. Right. What is the most worrisome downstream effect of inflammation? Free radical mediated stress, which to all of us means mitochondrial damage. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you know, here this was published in the journal Movement Disorders. How many people have read it? Not a lot. Was it front page on the you right. know, right. med page today or something? No, yeah, it yeah. wasn't. But that's our, that's our mission. And right. we make this information available through our outreach for those who are interested in learning about it. Right. Yeah, it's just really, that's so, that's very inspirational. It's just really, really exciting to hear about. Um, so, I mean, it, it, you know, I just 
jumping around a little bit here, just talking about Alzheimer's because you're putting a lot of attention there. Is that, I mean, fundamentally, mechanistically, are you, is this an acquired mitochondropathy as well? I mean, how would you articulate that, the fundamental patho, the molecular, I guess, pathophysiology? Kara, I'd say that <clears throat> that is, uh, you know, uh, the million dollar question here. And I think what we've uh, uh, clearly come to understand is that it's a multifactorial event. It is not a thing. It is not the uh, cholinergic hypothesis. Years ago, it was noted post-mortem in the brains of Alzheimer's patients that there was less in, in the so-called Alzheimer's areas of interest, there was less acetylcholine. Well, therefore, deficiency of acetylcholine, that must be the problem. Let's fix it. Like low levels of dopamine are characteristic of, of Parkinson's, as if that were the problem, the fundamental problem. So what happened uh, was, based on the cholinergic hypothesis, uh, medications were developed that could uh, inhibit the enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine. We call them cholinesterase inhibitors, and that's where, what their genesis was. And it's really a reductionist uh, mentality uh, that ultimately manifests as monotherapy, which doesn't work. So we have to abandon the notion that there is a single cause of Alzheimer's and with that, that there is a single remedy for this situation. There are many ways that you can jump on this carousel mm -hmm. uh, and it takes a lot of work to slow this carousel down and the goal, of course, is to stop it. That said, um, if we recognize that fundamental here is the mitochondrial dysfunction, which has been demonstrated for years, one might expect that targeting mitochondrial function might be worthwhile uh, as part of the puzzle. As you know, Dr. Dale yeah. Brennison leverages 36 different points. Yeah. Uh, he calls them holes in the roof to keep the, the rain out of the house. And I am certain some, uh, some of the holes are bigger than others and are letting more water in. I think probably the biggest hole, uh, the biggest area of uh, leverage would be recognizing the powerfully damaging effect uh, of dietary sugar and refined yeah. carbohydrates on the brain through the mechanism of development of insulin resistance. We'll talk about that in just a minute, but even simply wanting to target the mitochondria, Dr. Bredesen does it with a ketogenic diet, yeah. but even targeting the mitochondria, uh, as we learned in the journal Neuroscience Letters in November of 2018, using something like a a medium chain triglyceride oil, MCT yeah. oil, in order to increase the production of ketone bodies, allow ketone bodies to be present to power up the brain cells of Alzheimer's patients uh, has been proven effective. So in one study giving uh, 50 grams daily uh, for 12 weeks uh, of a ketogenic formula demonstrated to increase ketones in individuals, Japanese study, showed significant improvement in both immediate and delayed uh, logical memory uh, compared to baseline. And these are in individuals who were already uh, well on their way to cognitive, and who were declining cognitively. And so in 12 weeks, you would have expected them to be worse. Even neutralizing them uh, so they didn't decline would have been a great uh, accomplishment, but they actually uh, improved. So what are you doing with that? You are increasing the provision of of ketone bodies like beta-hydroxybutyrate, which the brain loves, but I'll also tell you something that um, many of your uh, uh, listeners may not know, and there is when you give MCT oil, uh, the capric acid, which is the 10-carbon part of MCT, C8, C10, and C12, mm -hmm. uh, capric acid has been noted in Lay's syndrome, L-E-I-G-H syndrome, which is a specific deficiency of uh, mitochondropathy, inherited mitochondropathy of complex one. Uh, it's been demonstrated in lay syndrome that uh, giving uh, C10, uh, medium chain triglyceride, dramatically and directly upregulates complex one of mitochondrial activity. So I think that's really something to think about in terms of treating, in this case, uh, Alzheimer's disease. But I would also say that would be definitely something on the menu for a Parkinson's patient as well. Right. And really across the board as it relates to neurodegenerative conditions. So what we're looking at, what becomes so important is the notion of, 
of augmenting brain energetics, uh, the, yeah. the ability of the brain to utilize fuel source and to do its job. And what literature now tells us is that there is a deficiency, a bioenergetic failure, if you will, of the brain that is detected, detectable uh, 20 to even 30 years ahead of time prior to the onset of cognitive dysfunction. And that's a pretty uh, compelling thought. What is even more exciting is the uh, newer research by a Dr. Stephen Cunane, who has demonstrated that when you look at a glucose PET scan in an Alzheimer's patient, yes. and you see dramatic reduction in glucose utilization in the temporal parietal regions, the areas of interest as it relates to Alzheimer's disease. You look at these scans and you see, wow, look at that profound decrease in glucose utilization. You know, the, no the, the notion was that, oh, those are neurons that are, that are failing. They, they're not functional anymore and they're, they're not using glucose because they didn't start their motors, right? Well, that is a flawed ID, idea. Uh, because what Dr. Kunane has demonstrated is that when you administer ketones to these patients and then do a different kind of scan, mm -hmm. it's still a metabolic scan, but it's using C11 acetoacetate. So this is a brain mm -hmm. scan that's measuring brain metabolism of a ketone. These brains light up in a normal fashion. Oh my gosh, what is it telling us? Mm. That these are neurons that are... That are they're still they're, working. Yeah, they are functional, but not functioning. And yeah. they just need to be powered by the right kind of fuel, and they're going to go on their merry way. And what does that explain? It explains the study I, care, I spoke about a moment ago. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Where, where are these people improved? I mean, yes. that's where the rubber meets the road. That's, that's Repower right. the brain, and then the other study says, uh, yeah, okay, I get it. Let's prove it. He proves it. What more do we want here? Boom. I mean, Mic drop. Mic drop. Bet. Yeah. Well, I'm wearing a headset, so I'm not going to drop the mic. So, no. yeah. Listen, I just wanted to, I just want to, I just want to circle back to that original, the study out of Japan you just mentioned. That was 50 grams of MCT for 12 weeks per day for it, 12 weeks. That's what it was. Well, it was, a, a, it was a sort of, I don't want to say a proprietary formula, but it was, uh, you know, I'll give you the study. Uh, okay. so you yep, can yep. have it and put it in the, in the notes, but yeah. Um, it was 50 grams of their so-called uh, ketogenic formula, and uh, it contained 20 grams of uh, MCT oil. And they, um, what they did was it was a comparative study. They compared it with an isocaloric uh, formula uh, of individuals, but they didn't have the added MCT oil. So a great control. Yeah. They measured plasma levels of both acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate mm -hmm. uh, in the uh, MCT um, group, you would of course, as expected, it, these levels increased. And uh, so, what does that tell uh, a practitioner uh, about treating the next patient who comes in who says, "You know, doc, I want to do the best I can for my brain"? Or what might advice might this be for the practitioners for themselves? Yeah, it would be that we recognize the powerfully salubrious effects of uh, being in ketosis or uh, however you want to define it, at least having those ketone bodies available yeah. uh, to power our cells. Ketone bodies do some really uh, important things. Uh, we know that ketones historically have been fundamental for our ability to survive. We know that the ATP production utilizing ketones is far more efficient uh, in comparison to glucose, both on a milligram per milligram basis in terms of the number of ATP molecules produced. And uh, this ATP is produced with less production of damaging free radicals, i.e. reduced oxidative stress. We know that uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate in particular as one of the ketone bodies, though truth be known, it's not under scientific definition a ketone, who knew? But nonetheless, it all, it's like quinoa as a, as a grain, but it's not anyway. Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> but we know that uh, this beta-hydroxybutyrate that is produced when we are fasting, when we're on a ketogenic diet, when we're taking supplemental exogenous ketones, et cetera, is uh, as powerful in terms of its histone deacetylase activity. Mm -hmm. As such, 
it's changing gene expression. Right. It stimulates cellular function because it acts powerfully uh, through those G protein receptors on the cell wall. And from another, you know, from my perspective, that uh, beta hydroxybutyrate is a, 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 a yet another way to turn on the production of brain-derived neurotrophic factors. So like exercise, like turmeric, like DHA, it is enhancing the growth of new brain cells, specifically where we need them most, uh, in the hippocampus, and at the same time, enhancing neurogenesis. So we, I mean, enhancing neuroplasticity so that our neurons can reconnect, and that's fundamental for, for memory function. Let me ask you a couple of questions. You're, saying, okay. you're just saying a lot of really cool stuff here, and I just want to, I just, so, you know, I, I had the uh, privilege of talking to Walter Longo, and I know, I know that, that you know him, um, and have spoken to him, and we were, we were sort of waxing a bit philosophically about, uh, well, he, he was, this was, I was interviewing him, about the idea of um, exogenous ketones, using exogenous ketones and sort of putting them in a milieu of high sugar, and that could be sort of metabolically cacophonous. And I just, I'm curious. Oh, about, cacophonous. I'm, I'm, I love it. That's a great word. <laughs> but <laughs> what's your opinion? I, I'm, you know, I just want to throw that out there and get your p opinion. So if I'm kind of a standard American diet person and I go to GNC and grab some exogenous uh, ketones and start supplementing with them, is that a good thing? You know, all you know, all in all, is it better than just eating my standard American diet or, or is there any concern around that? Just out of curiosity. Well, I would say that uh, first, uh, Dr. Longo's work is really just exceptional. He's actually yeah. in our upcoming documentary as well. Good. And um, I would say, I guess the comparison then here is standard American diet unchanged Yes. Uh, in both groups. One group takes exogenous ketones. I think that the exogenous ketone group would probably be better off better outcome. because I think if they do raise levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate, they may be able to benefit from uh, aspects of it, whether it's G-protein aspects of it, BDNF, uh, et cetera, uh, yeah. increasing uh, insulin sensitivity. But uh, the degree of offset, I think this is where you're getting, the degree of offset is uh, not important. So if you're eating this diet that's high in refined carbohydrates, Mm -hmm. That is the worst thing you could be doing. Uh, if it was a choice between changing your diet or doing a standard American diet and adding exogenous ketones, there'd be no choice. Clearly, I would opt for the former. In other words, dramatically cutting uh, your simple carbohydrates, refined carbohydrates, eating more fat. And whether you're in ketosis or not, and whether you're t taking exogenous ketones or not, that would be the throw the biggest net, in my opinion. So, okay. Yeah. That makes total sense. That makes, that makes a lot of really good sense. Um, yeah. Th so that, I want to talk to you about, um, you know, your whole prevention thinking and some of the things that you're doing, you've been very open about your family history of Alzheimer. And I know that you and your family are really, really mindful around your whole your whole, you know, your lifestyle and how you're, you're walking the walk as we were talking about that. So I want to talk about it. And I also, within this, I know that you eat, you know, you're, you, you're fully in a ketogenic diet and maybe that fluctuates, but how, yeah, how, how ketotic do we need to be, you know, to be getting, reaping the benefits? So prevention. That's a great question. And, and I think, uh, Kara, it'd be how ketotic are you uh, in the context of your hypoglycemia, degree of hypoglycemia Perfect. as well? Perfect. So I spent last uh, last night. I, okay. I, I spent giving a talk. I was with uh, Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, uh -huh. who yep. is really just uh, so dialed in on this, puts out so much wonderful information. And he talks about an index that looks at those two parameters: mm -hmm. uh, your fasting blood sugar and your ketone level. So, uh, what what I would tell you, I have. Um, I'm sitting here at my desk and like precision extra. Yeah, uh, glucometer and uh, beta hydroxybutyrate is right here. Yeah. I just look forward to uh, pricking my finger each day and then hoping I can still play guitar afterwards. But that said, <laughs> uh, I think that uh, my blood sugar runs about 65. Many would say, oh, wow, that's too low. How can you tolerate it? Well, I tolerate it because I'm running a ketone level, in my case, about a beta hydroxybutyrate of about 0 0.8 or slightly higher. 
And so I can have conversations with you that hopefully um, are, are somewhat uh, <laughs> meaningful. Uh, but that said, uh, I think that the notion of a normal blood sugar being up to 90 to 100 is pathetic. Uh -huh. When you look at the most well-respected literature that is already correlating increased risk for dementia at 105, uh, you know, and I, I spend a lot of time, obviously, in the in how all of this relates to, to the brain and its destiny. So I think that we should really uh, make it our goal to redefine where we want uh, our patients' blood sugars to be. Of course. Uh, every patient is different, and no one's going to jump from a blood sugar of 150 and be great at a blood sugar of 70 overnight. Right. They can absolutely uh, work to that end, as Dr. Sarah Hallberg has wonderfully demonstrated at, uh, uh, with her studies, Verda Health. Um, but uh, I think that it was, actually it was a question I was asked last night is, um, you know, suddenly we drop our blood sugar, especially athletes who are trying to do keto all of a sudden. Right. They drop right. their blood sugar and how do they yeah. feel? Well, I think there's a lot to be said about the notion of keto adaptation, and that is, mm. is uh, um, facilitating that pathway to utilize free fatty acids that are mobilized uh, for, for fuel to power first and foremost your brain and then your body. I mean, if you start crashing mentally, you're not going to be continuing to run or, or weightlifting. So I think there's a lot to be said about, yes, let's get the blood sugars down uh, to high 70s, 80s, maybe perhaps 90, although I'm starting to wonder about that. Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe don't pay so much attention to fasting blood sugar, but look at the A1C or fructosamine and also look at fasting insulin levels and get surprised. Yep. Uh, but that said, looking simultaneously at whatever marker you choose to give you a sense as to what is now supplanting uh, that uh, glucose level to power your brain and power your body, i.e., how keto adapted are you? And and I'm not talking about pushing yourself into ketosis uh, via exogenous ketones or even MCT at this point. I'm talking about uh, enhancing lipolysis uh, and the whole process of ketogenesis in your body, i.e., keto adaptation, which does not happen overnight. You know, it may take three, four, up to six weeks of diligence to uh, become flex fuel adapted. Right, right, right. So, okay, so just allowing yourself to move into it relatively slowly. Well, let me just ask you out of curiosity with the numbers that you just described, I mean, you're in pretty rich ketosis and your blood sugar is really low. Um, and you're, and you're, yeah, you're, re you're quite lucid. You're, pulling study after study off the top huh? of your head. Who, who is this? Who are you? <laughs> You're doing really what, what were you talking about? <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, what does your diet look like? I, I mean, are you just eating fat bombs all the time? I mean, what? You know? Oh, not at all. Uh, yeah. My diet is, uh, and this sounds, you know, kind of uh, in contradistinction to what some may have perceived the grain brain diet to have been or be. My diet is mostly vegetarian, uh -huh. uh, mostly above ground, colorful vegetables. Uh, I will uh, maybe once a week have, um, probably once every two weeks, have some meat, uh, more fish, uh, and some chicken. Probably, my, no, no, without a doubt, my biggest source of animal protein is wild fish, typically almost exclusively salmon. Um, and, and that's really, uh, you know, that, those are the fundamentals. I, I drench everything in olive oil. Mm -hmm. uh, whenever I eat, and which is typically twice a day, but actually either once or twice a day. Uh, I'm becoming more of a devotee to time restriction in terms of uh, the amount of time I spend, I'm allowing myself to eat during the course of the day and doing my very best to not eat uh, within three hours of going to sleep. Um, and I typically, though uh, most people uh, who are talking about this uh, do have breakfast, I'm not a big breakfast person, so I, I will go ahead and do my workout before I've eaten anything and typically eat by around 12 or 1 o'clock in the day. Uh, it, it just, you know, everybody has to find where they're functional, where they function best, what's comfortable for them. Um, I find that, uh, it, you know, there's various ways that you can assess, is it working? You know, one of the ways is your athletic performance. Uh, for me, yes, it's athletic performance. It's also cognitive performance. 
And it's also the quality of my sleep, I find, is significantly, this is a revelation, yeah. uh, significantly related to my adherence to the program or, or making changes in the program. Uh, and so I use an aura ring to determine uh, my quality of sleep, the amount of time I spent sleeping, my sleep onset, how much REM I'm getting, how much deep sleep, i.e. glymphatic, uh, cleaning my brain type of sleep, uh, how much of that is going on. And, and, and I make variations in my program and try to see in these various parameters what those variations do recognizing that I'm an N of one, as is everyone listening to this and their patients. So saying that, uh, where I'm going with that is, it's good to make the broad stroke recommendations, and, and certainly we have done that today, and we will, will likely continue to do that today. Yeah. But in addition, you know, there is, there is plenty to be said about then. We understand lower refined carbohydrates, physical exercise, making sure of sleep, et cetera. But what does Kara need specifically based on her uh, genome, her microbiome, her current medical situation, her, her current biometrics across the board? What would be best for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I do consider coffee to be a vegetable. I'm, I'm there. I've never heard that said before, but I, I am now going to incorporate that. I love that. And honey is not, you know, not that I would recommend right. honey for anything because it's sugar, but uh, I think vegetarians, you know, come clean here. Honey is an animal product. That's interesting. Yeah, made, yeah. Made by animals. So, yeah, so, so, so thus far on my journey, coffee has been a part of my world. Hey, everybody, thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this content, you might want to know about our functional medicine clinic immersion programs available to all qualified practitioners who want to advance their applied clinical skills and build confidence in helping even their toughest cases. Delivered fully online, our program provides live mentorship option, access to our clinic's discussions of real patient cases, teach-ins with expert colleagues, and the opportunity to become part of an engaged and nurturing community of peers. Most importantly, you'll get the support you need to bridge the gap between functional medicine theory and practice. Spaces for a one-year mentorship option are limited, so early application is advised. Please visit drcarafitzgerald.com, choose the Professionals tab, and select Professional Education Programs to find out more about the options available and to apply. And now back to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. In the morning. Yeah, I, I presented a study last night demonstrating how uh, ketones uh, within four hours of coffee consumption are definitely upregulated. And it, it's, it's a cup of black coffee. It's not a frappuccino. Right. A frappuccino is not drinking coffee. A frappuccino has 72 grams of sugar. That's 18 teaspoons of sugar. So again, that's the notion, well, coffee upregulates ketones, therefore does that offset the 18 teaspoons of sugar? Hard to imagine. So let me ask you a question too, just considering right before we hopped on the call, you were actually working out. Um, I just, you know, thinking about, and I mean, not a latte, but if you did anything high intensity, if you, you know, moved into kind of uh, phosphocreatine, if you need, if you did any burst training, you know, we tend to need, uh, at least my experience, and maybe this is my N of one versus your N of one, you know, I, Physically, I do better in a ketogenic diet, and I think I could actually do a lot better if I turn the volume up on it. Like currently, I tend to be sort of just using a urine a, a urine strip, but like maybe in small. And I and I and I, and, I, and, I, and and honestly, I think if I measured my sugar, which I should do because I do have my um, precision kicking around here, it would probably be higher than I'd I'd like it to be. There's actually, as an aside, there's a cool study from you know, the early 2000s, the San Antonio Heart Study, where they really looked at those numbers in relation to cardiovascular disease and saw anything, I think around 80, 85 or below, 80, 85 or above is being associated with increased risk. So they did it, they sorted the data into um, 
quintiles and mm. and also with insulin so insulin five or above was associated with increased cardiovascular disease and that is you know that is definitely on the low side of normal in a standard insulin range so those are those have been my numbers that I work mm -hmm. with personally in my practice. Um, and then David Ludwig, I actually pinged David Ludwig on what he thought an optimal insulin was, and he put it at around two of, of somebody who's metabolically optimal, not- I would, uh, I, I would agree with, with uh, Dr. Ludwig. He is yet another of the participants yeah. in our, our program. Um, you're gonna, it sounds like you guys are really putting together a, a cool program. It was, uh, it was really very, very exciting. Uh, and just to hear, when you let these, when you, you take your foot off the brake and let these people go, yeah. wow, it was great stuff. So it, sure. it's up to us now to figure out how in the heck do we ed, do we parse this out? You know, how do we edit it? But that yeah. we, we have people for that. But right. but you're right. Uh, let me get back to I think where you're going with birth training. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, I, it's all about the individual, and people should learn what's best for them based upon, in this case, what type of exercise they gravitate towards. And I think. Some of that has to do with genetics in terms of energy, their body's ability to utilize energy. But you know, keep in mind that we've got you know, 12 miles running worth of uh, glycogen at the ready. Uh, so um, you know, we're, we can power both with fat and, uh, and, and glucose just from mobilization of glycogen stores. But then again, if, if somebody thinks they do better on a specific supplement during training, we hear plenty of anecdotes, and there's and some of them have some pretty good scientific underpinning. So let's talk about that. I want to so I want to just I want to start to kind of just tease out some of your thinking. I mean, I, and I know you've evolved since Grain Brain. And you actually Hopefully. published an update, yeah, right? And when you published it, yeah, you've, you've been conversing on this arena. But I want to talk about prevention. And I want to just talk about, you know, we're, we're broad stroke, stroking it here. But, it, you know, you're your your prevention protocol so we know we're looking at getting into a ketogenic program whatever that looks like for the individual i get that you're underscoring that quite a bit and i appreciate it i mean it sounds like mct but you know exercise you've spoken about sleep you've spoken about um you know what else well, let me amplify that for just a moment and, and talk about why it really, uh, you know, mechanistically, what else may be going on that is really fundamental. It's, it's not just that we're trying to power the brain with a, a more efficient fuel source. I listed a, a few of the other uh, uh, attributes of beta-hydroxybutyrate, the histodeacetylase activity, the g yes. stimulation, et cetera. But I think the main goal here is to look at improving insulin sensitivity. Now, why do we want to do that? We want to do that because uh, insulin is uh, a fundamental player as it relates to um, long-term potentiation. That's the way we consolidate uh, activity into memory. And it also is a trophic hormone for the brain we also know that we need good insulin functionality of, of blood-brain barrier insulin uh, receptors to allow the brain to absorb glucose from the bloodstream. So the whole notion of developing insulin resistance is uh, really important as it relates to the brain, and that is yet another target of getting onto a ketogenic diet, right? Mm -hmm. So there's been no effective way for example, for the pharmaceutical realm to help rid the brain of beta amyloid. Every attempt to do so has actually really been associated with worsening cognitive function um, for whatever reason. Uh, even efforts to reduce the production beta amyloid via enzyme manipulation and even uh, vaccine, uh, vaccinating people you know, to develop uh, antibodies against beta amyloid. These have all been fraught with complications, and all of these trials, 100%, have come up empty-handed. But uh, there was a very interesting study that was appearing in March of 2018. I don't know the date. I apologize. And the study uh, looked at um, having insulin resistance during uh, your midlife time uh, and what did that do to your risk for amyloid accumulation? Mm. 
considering people who were APOE4 positive and APOE4 negative. Mm. And what the study found yeah. was really very, very remarkable. That just in looking at the insulin resistant versus people who were not insulin resistant by whatever definitions they used, uh, HOMA, IR uh, findings, um, there was a dramatic increased risk of having a positive amyloid scan if you were insulin resistant in comparison to insulin uh, sensitive or not having insulin resistance. And then they did it in looking at those individuals who were APOE4 positive. We know that individuals who are APOE4 positive, uh, homozygous more than heterozygous, accumulate beta amyloid at a higher rate and would be more likely to have a positive amyloid brain scan. But so when you look at this, even in the people who were APOE4 positive, there was much more risk of amyloid accumulation if they were APOE4 positive and insulin resistant. So take home message here. You're not gonna change whether you're APOE4 positive or negative. You get back your 23andMe and you see the results, pretty much end of story. But you sure as heck can determine whether you're insulin resistant or not, and that's a lifestyle choice. It's primarily based upon a diet, secondarily based upon things like quality of sleep and uh, exercise activity. Mm -hmm. Diet being by far and away the most important leg of that stool. Mm -hmm. You know, it's been often said that you can't exercise away a crummy diet, and I, I truly believe that. So, you know, all of these efforts to build a brain with less beta amyloid <laughs> need to take a look at this study published in such a respected journal that says, hey, if you're insulin resistant, look at your risk of having a positive amyloid scan. Now, that's not the end all, all right. but it's certainly very important, you know, as people consider the, uh, you know, this amyloid hypothesis. All right. All right. Um, okay. So you hit that home. <laughs> okay. Are we going to the bonus round now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's so great. It's very, very, very elegant and eloquent. And folks, um, we'll circle back to all the citations from Dr. Perlmutter and we'll just pop them <laughs> Good on luck with that. I, I know, I know. We're going to, we'll, we'll do the best that we can. I was going to say that actually, but we're going to really. I'll make it work. Uh, I'll make it work. Because <laughs> you've just, yeah, you definitely have given us a lot of really juicy content and I know everybody wants to check it out. Um, okay. So, so, so supplements, they're kind of like maybe the icing on mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the sugar-free yet tasty and safe icing on top of this. Um, what are you thinking about? I, and, and are you considering medications? But it, and remember, we're still over in the prevention camp. Yeah, uh, I'd say that uh, supplements are exactly what their name engenders, and that is they are supplemental too. And supplemental to fill in the gaps that might be created. Uh, and what is, I think, one of the biggest gaps that is created in the modern diet is the created as we look at this ratio between omega-6 and omega-3, which is yeah. perversely elevated in favor right. of omega-6. So I think we've got to work on that first through diet and recognizing where these omega-6s are coming from, but also um, adding in some good levels of omega-3. Uh, and certainly DHA is one very important supplement as it relates to the brain. Martha Clara Morris at Rush has called our attention to this relationship uh, between lower levels of DHA and increased out, uh, risk for dementia for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. So I think that's very important information. We recognize that DHA is an anti-inflammatory through its effect as a COX-2 inhibitor. Uh, DHA is a PPAR gamma activator and as such also reduces inflammation. Mm -hmm. uh, DHA uh, serves as a precursor, interestingly, uh, for uh, endocannabinoids mm, that can right. block endocannabinoids like 2-AG and anandamide, uh, which would otherwise stimulate the CB1 cannabinoid, endocannabinoid receptor and would have otherwise increased uh, the production of inflammatory mediators, appetite, uh, reduced lipolysis. So, um, so that's it's basically offsetting the impact of THC, that's what you're saying. Well, to some degree, but understand that uh, anandamide and 2-AG are made from arachidonic acid. Right. That's and right. as such, yeah. they are higher, uh, they are derivatives of an omega-6 diet. You know, so right. we power, right. lower ourselves up with omega-6s from eating grocery store 
oils, safflower, corn oil, et cetera, sunflower oil, uh, ultimately elevate our arachidonic acid uh, production, we are setting the stage for increased, ultimately, CB1 activity, which uh, is, uh, you know, especially as it relates to its uh, adipocyte activity, is increasing all the things we don't want to we don't want to increase and reducing things like adiponectin. So right. uh, we can offset that then by having higher levels of blocking endocannabinoids that are yeah. produced from higher levels of omega-3. Right. So I think it's kind of interesting in this day and age of <laughs> people beginning to understand the endocannabinoid system to understand yes. that it leverages uh, our diet in yeah. terms of its endogenous activity significantly and we can manipulate our endocannabinoid system based upon food and supplements so very 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 cool thank you yeah and so choosing a dha supplement uh i would look for a um phospholipid dha there's uh that's on the market okay Uh, i i would look to the future uh for uh fish derived oils that uh may provide these um pro-resolving mediators that are so important in resolving this uh, process of chronic uh, inflammation. So a DHA is absolutely on the list, I think. How would you uh, dose it? How how, how would you dose it? uh, I think 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams of the DHA part of the fish oil pill. So look at the EPA. But I think if you're just going to focus on the DHA, I think phospholipid uh, DHA is, is the way to go. You know, there are a lot of other things. I think whole coffee fruit uh, extract or concentrate mm-hmm. uh, has been demonstrated to augment BDNF production as, as much as exercise, of course, depending on the degree of exercise. So I would leave that on the list. I think vitamin D, good old vitamin D, which isn't a vitamin, uh, has got to be on the list. And I think um, that um, there's a lot of magnesium deficiency around. And I yeah. think we need... Uh, adequate amounts of magnesium for um, utilization of a variety of enzymatic pathways. That would be on the list. Uh, I like turmeric uh, because of its anti-inflammatory activity, its NRF2 activation activity, and the whole cascade there as it relates to reducing inf- uh, inflammation, augmenting it, uh, endogenous antioxidant function, enhancing glutathione uh, transferase, so uh, a role then in uh, detoxification. Uh, you know, that's probably the bare bones list. Beyond that, I think you cultivate a list based upon um, testing, uh, based upon what you're finding, either directly measuring things or looking at downstream effects. Uh, Measuring homocysteine as a marker of availability of methylated B vitamins, for example, or even standard B vitamins in those individuals who don't have an MTHFR a polymorphism, uh, a polymorphism, as do I, uh, for that matter. So, uh, there you go. Okay. Okay. So then, yes. Yeah, so, uh, any any made you you mentioned homocysteine. Any other big labs that you're going to be thinking about? Like, what are the first ones you're going to be checking off for oh, most as of your? As labs go, I'd say that um, there's huge merit in understanding uh, someone's fasting insulin, yeah. fasting blood sugar, mm-hmm. A1C homocysteine, C-reactive protein. If you want to start looking at ADOHDG as a downstream marker of inflammation and then generation of oxidative stress, that would be good. Um, you know, I think that would be the, the, the key players for everyone. Then again, as we move to more of a personalized approach, uh, I, I would say that uh, a genetic profile is very uh, good to have to then recognize where further deficiencies may exist, recommendations in terms of further supplementation based upon uh, understanding of an individual's, uh, you know, uh, cytochrome P450 activity, or, or you name it, vitamin D okay. receptor, okay. polymorphisms, as mentioned, MTHFR. Yeah. So there are a variety of things more that you will then learn about an individual's ability to metabolize fat. Uh, and risk for certain things that you would then want to look at at further laboratory studies. But to throw the broad net in terms of what I believe should happen when somebody goes for their annual physical at their family practitioner, uh, I would love to add to the fasting glucose NA1C and at least a fasting insulin level. Uh, You know, we reserve A1C for diabetics 
And right. hey, we're already seeing correlation of brain shrinkage at an A1C of 5.6, 5 5.7. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. So this is a powerful correlative marker as it relates to risk of brain shrinkage. Now, uh, that's probably not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, one of the really interesting things I've just observed in my clinical practice, I've never seen it published, although I haven't even looked for it. It's just something that I've observed in premenopausal women, and particularly there's a few with PCOS coming to mind. Mm -hmm. You know, normal A1C, even an A1C, you know, that we would consider great, but a very high insulin, actually within normal limits, but up in the 10, 15, you know, 19, just maybe, maybe just above the normal limits of the reference range. I mean, what I see is this insulin working just over time to control blood sugar and A1C. And you wouldn't, you would not know that if you didn't get a fasting insulin. And uh, of course, if you don't look for it, you're not going to find it. And it yeah. really brings up a very uh, you know, interesting part of this discussion that might uh, explain uh, to some degree, why there is uh, a two-to-one representation in Alzheimer's patients, women to men. Uh, mm. we, we know that uh, PCOS, which may affect as many as 20% of American uh, women, yeah. the number one cause of infertility in America, uh, in, and uh, is something that affects men and women, though men don't get cysts on their ovaries, they get all the other metabolic stuff that goes around, that goes uh, along with this. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the skin changes, the right. metabolic issues, et cetera. Right. But what is interesting about uh, PCOS is vis-a-vis -vis our earlier discussion of early brain changes in terms of glucose utilization, uh -huh. that it's been demonstrated that in, uh, in uh, women with PCOS, there is a between a nine and a fourteen percent decline in brain glucose utilization in women average age twenty five years. Isn't that extraordinary? With PCOS, that translates to a brain energy wow. pattern of a seven year old. So wow. this becomes an issue for us to be concerned with today. Yeah, uh, that needs attention right now because. Yeah. My sense is that unchecked, the brain gl the glucose utilization is going to further decline, and yes. that's not a good thing. Yes, so yes. So I think that's really very important data. Yeah, it's, it's just this observation I've made time and again. I would never not get a fasting insulin. And, you know... Um, just it, it, they it, they would be not not that many women have ovarian cysts uh, who are P, who are metabolically PCOS. You know, you I see, agree, and you it know. is it's an unfortunate uh, term. It's like the right. term progesterone. It's for gestation. <laughs> right. Gosh, right. I yeah, mean yeah, that, that yeah. kind of locks you into this mentality. Or yes. oh, my testosterone level. Well, oh, how does it relate to women? You know, they're just, we name cholecystokinin, it's effect acts in the brain, you know, uh, 90 uh, plus percent of serotonin is active in the gut, not the brain. Right. Nine, uh, and so, you know, another 9% yeah. is in the platelets and 1% is in the brain, yet we call it a neurotransmitter. <laughs> so, uh, we, you know, it, the, the names that get attached to these things really compromise our ability to have a broader view of their activity. Absolutely. Well, and we just end up missing. We just miss women all of the time, unless you're willing to cast the wider net. Like if you would pick it up in the labs that you just articulated. I mean, you would pick up those imbalances in a lot of individuals, regardless yes. of what you end up labeling, you know, or coding them as. And so what has to happen then is that, uh, you know, doctors need just to add this to the list. And before they will add it to the list, however, they're going to have to have an answer to the question as to why. And that then begins the whole discussion as to, you know, the fundamental importance of insulin sensitivity well beyond just lowering blood sugar. Yeah. The fundamental long-term consequences of insulin resistance throughout the body, immune dysfunction, cardiac dysfunction, and certainly as it relates to the brain. Right, uh, and and that's it. That then requires taking the course or listening to the lecture or something, just some way to, to get tuned in. But I would say that even if doctors uh, could check fasting insulin yeah. and an A one C on their non diabetic patients, they start yes. to make discoveries 
and then begin to ponder, wow, I wonder what this means. Yes. And let me just say parenthetically that as it relates to A1C, uh, and this is extremely, extremely powerful because first of all, uh, A1C is an indication of, right, elevated persistent elevation of glucose as an average. That's what people understand. Okay, well, what does that mean? Uh, it means then that that person is at risk for insulin resistance. It correlates, as mentioned, with increased risk of brain uh, atrophy. Uh, but beyond that, what is actually happening when hemoglobin is glycated? This is a post-translational, conformational change of that protein in its appearance. Its three-dimensional configuration is altered. And that is yeah. huge. You know, the functionality of the proteins is totally linked to how they appear, to their shape. Right. Right. Uh, and so suddenly we've changed the shape of a protein. We, uh, and I want your listeners to right now be thinking uh, at the same time, multitasking, of the notion of misfolded proteins as it relates yeah. to the brain. Anyway, so, right. well, to talk about that, we, you know, we talk about misfolded proteins uh, as it relates to things in the brain, alpha-synuclein. Uh, amyloid, uh, yeah. etc., and uh, it's changing the shape and therefore the characteristics of proteins. And by far and away, the biggest issue here is changing the shape of our proteins when they glycate. When you and believe me, just because we measure A1C and its hemoglobin, it's not the only protein that gets glycated. You know, proteins throughout the body are susceptible to this change in their three dimensionality. And uh, that creates issues as it relates to inflammation and autoimmunity. So, I, I, you know, there's a lot going on with hemoglobin A1C that, uh, you know, I think uh, people should be aware of. Yeah, without, without question. And, you know, this just circles me back to, um, you know, your comment. Uh, and I know, unfortunately, we have to wrap up. I could just, mm -hmm. <laughs> but your comment of, you know, a few... A few a handful of minutes back when we were originally dialoguing around prevention and the bioenergetic failure that is initially perceived 20 to 30 years out. I mean, you know, when we're when we're talking about these early perturbations and, you know, insulin resistance, the early onset of insulin resistance. Um, and well, yeah, let me just say that yeah. uh, this is a great place to, to wrap it up uh, and, and to look also at the literature that correlates markers of inflammation three decades out as being predictors of brain shrinkage, specifically in Alzheimer's areas of interest, as well as memory dysfunction. Markers of inflammation that were measured three decades ago and then come back and see these patients now, you see a perfect correlation uh, between degree of brain atrophy as well as functional changes. And those markers back then were things like uh, von Willebrand's factor, um, fibrinogen, total white count, etc. Uh, more recently, a, stu a, a study that was published in February of 2019 uh, looked at similar factors and also added C-reactive protein, but extended the group uh, that was evaluated to individuals even in their mid-20s, and again, uh, found a, a dramatic increased risk of developing cognitive dysfunction based upon having elevated inflammatory markers 30 years ago. So wow. my point is it, it's, it's all well and good to, uh, to see patients with mild cognitive impairment, already established Alzheimer's disease. But I think, you know, to really throw that net as wide as we can early on in life, mm -hmm. uh, to, to get the word out that research is demonstrating that inflammatory markers that, um, looking at uh, waist-to-hip ratio 30 years prior are, are powerful predictors of Alzheimer's risk. That's a message that's kind of hard to sell because, yeah, I know if um, you know, I wear my seatbelt today, my risk of being hurt in an accident today is reduced. But you're telling me my diet today, I'm going to think about this 30 years from now? Yes, that's exactly what we're saying. Because when it gets to the point that you suddenly are beginning to experience measurable cognitive decline, with all due respect, there's not as there's very little that can be done. Right. So that's the message that we we yell from the mountaintops that um, 
it's a preventable situation and, th- and, and this is how to do it. And it's very straightforward. And it's not like uh, this is going to put you at risk for other things while at the same time reducing the risk of Alzheimer's. You know, this is the best diet lifestyle program you can be on. It's the same thing you should do for your heart, for cancer risk, yeah. et cetera. And yeah. it's all about inflammation and, uh, you know, insulin sensitivity. I just, I'm, I, I just had to pull up a, a 13 year old patient who came to me with PCOS. I just had to look at her labs and, <laughs> and it's, and it's right. She's 13 and her, her, her fasting insulin is, is 23.5. Mm. And I mean, that's so we're, so we think about our adult patients, but indeed this is, you know, this is with pediatricians. These are our, our, our kids. You know, this is when, this is when we're seeing it. So I hear you. And, uh, my heart right now is saddened to hear that news about a, uh, this child. Yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, it, it's saddened in the context of very likely 98%, I, just, I pulled it out of a hat, of pediatricians are going to think that the answer here is simply a medicating this child. You know, that metformin is going to fix those problems, end of story. And it, it, it really is just uh, one part of the story. Or... Uh, you know, gastric uh, reduction surgery or something like that. Gosh, right, right, that's right. that. And then, you know, uh, birth control pills. Right. That's not the answer here. Right, right. That's right. Well, you know what? Her A1C is 4.9. So they'd miss it anyway. And they wouldn't, yeah, they wouldn't use it. That's right. Right, right. At least not at this point until she Well, was. interestingly now, so she is an individual who doesn't glycate as readily. But right. nonetheless, uh, it's clear that uh, what's your fasting blood sugar? It's 100. Actually, uh-huh. fast. It, you know, actually, it was initially it was 121, and then I'm just sort of scrolling over the course Good of time. You. And now, but well, let me tell you the really uh, amazing piece of this story. I mean, now her last insulin, I think she was down to um, single digit. I just have to pull it up. But but the but the most important part of the story is that. Actually, and I see her A1C is now down to 4.7, but is, is her own embrace of what's happened with her, mm, her own empowerment it. of how pulling, how these carbs, yeah, how these carbs have been making her feel lousy in this little 13-year-old, you know, with a complaint of brain fog. I mean, oh, that was her initial complaint. What do you well, know? Well, it was, it was, yes, it was one of them, one of the, one of the handful of issues. I mean, PCOS is what originally brought her, but yeah, not, you know, just not feeling good, being irritable, not thinking well, et cetera. So just, you know, right there, but also that it's just really lovely to change the course of, of someone's existence or have them learn. Actually, I didn't change the course. She adopted this and she got it, you know, from her own experience by doing Doing these How things. beautiful for you, though, that, that you're getting to experience this with a, a child whose life, uh, whose destiny has, been, destiny has been changed. No question. Yeah, that's right. Not only her destiny, but, you know, then those she'll go out and influence by it, um, you know, having this information at such a young age. Yeah, for sure. Well, I... We'll have, we have to do a part two for sure. You know, maybe after the documentary's out, I'm so looking forward to it. <laughs> and I know you've got another book coming out as well. You've got lots of stuff going on. But as you said to me before, you're going to leave for four months and practice what you preach by sailing in a boat to Alaska <laughs> with your wife. <laughs> That's right. What can I say? It's a, it's a lifelong dream. And, uh, Beautiful. you know, what's nice, I'll be reading along the way and writing and, yeah. uh, still remaining engaged but but thank you for our time together we really seem to cover a lot of uh, ground and uh, it was a lot of fun yeah it was it was great just a real honor to be able to talk to you today thank you yeah me too bless you we'll talk soon and that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine i am so glad that you could join me none of this would be possible through the years without our generous wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day.
Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making new frontiers in functional medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, these kind of comments will promote new frontiers in functional medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.